0: Good morning. Our scripture this morning is found in Psalms 51, verses 1 through 12. Um, I'll be reading from the ESV. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word.
1: Thank you, Redonda. I was raised in a church-going home. And you could pretty much be sure if the doors were going to be open at the First Baptist Church in New London, the Byers family was going to be there. And in addition to being at all kinds of church events, being at church all the time, there was also regularly Christian television programming on around our home, which was not always sound, but it was on nonetheless. And uh, and I had the example of my Mom reading her Bible routinely of an evening, and I always had the example of my dad at least studying his Sunday school lesson before uh, Sunday school started. And so so there was a lot of Christianity in our house. And about age five, I remembered clearly understanding that there was a hell and that I did not want to go there. And so I remember talking with my mom about this. One time she was in the kitchen, and I was on the other side of the counter playing in cabinets uh, in the same general vicinity. And we were talking about this. and, and my mom uh, told me, "Well, if you don't want to go to hell, basically you, you pray this prayer." And and you, you won't go to hell. And, and, if, and what you need to do then is on Sunday, you need to walk down the aisle and shake the pastor's hand and tell him that you prayed that prayer. And so I did what my mom said. And the following Sunday, I walked down the aisle and I shook the pastor's hand. And a few weeks later, they they dunked me in a tank full of water in front of the whole church. And uh, what followed from that was uh, several, several years of just typical childhood and I was indistinguishable from any other elementary school boy. And then I went into my, my middle school years and adolescence, and uh, I, I didn't want to be distinguishable from any other middle school boy. And so what, what the, every other boy was doing, who was anyone I wanted to do, and it just ramped up from there. And it ramped up to a series of not only decisions that were like everyone else, But I I was running as hard as I could in the opposite direction of everything that would be labeled Christianity. I was running as hard as I could away from God and toward what I thought was a good time. And uh, through a series of events, I wound up one night at the home of an older college student. I was a sophomore in high school. And this was a guy who I actually thought was cool, even though he, he was a, a professing Christian. And so we're talking about his lifestyle and talking about his, his faith in Christ and his commitment to Christ. And what I found was a deep sense of remorse and regret for all of these things that I had pursued and all of these things that I had done. And often, many of them I had done, in a sense, to fly in the face of the Christianity that I was raised with them. And and I heard the story of a guy who who his life wasn't about all of those things. His life was about Christ, and he was satisfied with Christ. And so, so I had a deep sense of remorse for my past, and I had a deep sense of longing for what he had that I did not possess. And I remember as I sat there in his his room, or living room that night, I just thought, man, I wish I wouldn't have blown it. I wish I wouldn't have lived that way. I wish I wouldn't have ignored everything that I was taught because I knew what was right. I did the opposite and so there's no way that I can be forgiven because I knew it was sin and I did it anyway. Now here's the crazy thing about where I sat that night. See, I believed or I accepted as fact that the Bible was the word of God. I believe or accepted as fact that God is a perfect trinity, three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I believe that God made everything from nothing and that God made people in his image and that those people sinned against God and because of that, everyone was guilty of sin. I believed or accepted as fact that Jesus was the Son of God who is conceived by the Holy Spirit of a virgin and who lived a perfect sinless life And I believe that Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for sinners and that Jesus rose again. I had a basic understanding. I knew all of these things that Christians throughout history and the world over have believed. I acknowledged as fact what the church, lowercase c, Catholic, the church church universal said, this is Christianity. But that didn't make me a Christian. Because although I knew or accepted as fact all of this about God and knew that I was a sinner, the problem is that I wasn't convinced that God could forgive me. But throughout history and the world over, Christians have universally believed in the forgiveness of sins. Should be on the next slide. In the forgiveness of sins, extended to all who repent and believe, reconciling sinners to their creator, signified by baptism, rising from death to life, and washing away sin. Now here's what that means. It means that God is a righteous judge, but he gladly pardons sinners. It means that he does this for anyone, regardless of what they've done, if they will acknowledge their sin, turn from it, and believe on or place their trust and confidence in Christ. And through repentance and faith in Christ, Sinners experience peace with God and are brought into a right relationship with Him. And Christian baptism in water, which is an act of obedience to Christ, shows this cleansing of a sinner and their change of identity, of allegiance, and direction in life. Now, where I stand today, it's hard for me to believe that anyone would doubt that God could forgive them. That's what I believed then, at that moment. But today, it's hard for me to believe that anyone could doubt that God would be willing to forgive them. Actually, from where I stand today, it seems more likely that someone would presume upon God's forgiveness and God's acceptance of their lifestyle or their decisions, rather than acknowledging any need of wrongdoing or forgiveness of sins at all. But forgiveness has not always been universally accepted. Today, if you went out and, and asked someone, hey, do you believe that God is a forgiving God? Most people, whether they're church going or not, if they believe there's a God, would say, yes, I, I believe that, that God is forgiving. But that has not always been universally accepted. The fact that anyone would think that God will forgive their wrongs or their sins is evidence of the influence of Christianity. Two of the three great creeds of Christianity, or what we call the great tradition, they include a reference to the forgiveness of sins, the Apostles' Creed and the, the Nicene Creed. And writing around the late 300s, there was a bishop or a pastor over pastors in a city, and he was, his name was Rufinus, and Rufinus was asked to give an explanation of the Apostles' Creed. Someone said, "Okay, I, I get this is this is a, a pledge of allegiance to Christianity, but could you could you unpack it for me? Could you explain it to me?" And and in his commentary on what the Apostles' Creed means in the section on the forgiveness of sins, Rufinus writes this again should be on the screen. He says, "For the pagans, so the non Christians, the the people who worship." Other gods, other religions, false gods. The pagans are wont to ridicule us, saying that we, talking about Christians, deceive ourselves, fancying that crimes committed in deed can be purged by words. And they say, can he who has committed murder be no murderer? And he who has committed adultery be accounted no adulterer? How then can one guilty of crimes of this sort all of a sudden be made holy. But to this, as I said, we answer better by faith than by reason. For he is king of all who hath promised it. He is Lord of heaven and earth who assures us of it. Would you have me refuse to believe that he who made, man of, made me a man of the dust of the earth can a guilty person make me innocent? So, Rufinus is saying, the pagans... They scoff at Christianity. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. They scoff at that. And they say, can God, just by words, forgive someone who is immoral? Can God take a murderer who says, forgive me, and say you're forgiven, and him not be a murderer anymore? Can God take an adulterer who says, I've sinned, forgive me? And just simply say you're forgiven and him not be an adulterer anymore? Can God forgive really bad sinners? The pagans, they thought, okay, you you know, maybe you got mad and you yelled at someone. Okay, there's a place in our belief system for forgiveness of that. But are you telling me that your God that you worship forgives murderers and adulterers and fornicators? He takes these really bad sinners and he forgives them? Are you, are you telling me that's even possible? And here's Rufinus' explanation. He says, Yes, we believe that. One, we believe that because the king promised it. We believe it because the king promised it. He who is king, it's a reference to God. He says, Also, we believe that because we believe that God made a man out of dust. And if God made a man out of dust, why would it be so hard for God to make a saint out of a sinner? So it's not hard for us to believe that. Now, where would Rufinus get this idea that God is the king who had promised forgiveness to those who repent and believe and those who become Christians and are baptized? Where would Rufinus get that idea? In the Bible. Christians believe what we believe about the forgiveness of sins because of what the Bible teaches about the forgiveness of sins. Beginning in the book of Genesis, we see that all mankind, through Adam's disobedience to God, has been plunged into sin and is in need of forgiveness. And so David acknowledges in Psalm 51, the text that Redonda read for us today, David acknowledges his need of mercy... And mercy implies pardon, not getting what we deserve. He acknowledges that he has transgressed or he has sinned against God. And so he needs that stain of guilt removed. He acknowledges that his sin is first and foremost against God. And he acknowledges that God would be right to judge him, to condemn him. And he acknowledges that he has been sinful from birth, not because of immorality on his mother's part, not due to adultery or fornication, but because he was conceived, and from the moment of his conception, he has life, and so therefore he is in Adam. He shares in Adam's guilt, or we would even say original sin. He shares in that guilt from the moment of conception the moment of his life so no matter what we've done to who or who we've done it to we have all sinned against God and we all need to be forgiven this is evident in David's words there in Psalm 51 but how can we be forgiven well in the Old Testament we see that God gives Israel his commands in the law and in Leviticus chapter 4 we see just one example in that chapter we're told if a person unknowingly commits a sin he should take a bull and have it sacrificed this way and at the end of the passage it says and the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven if he knowingly commits a sin he should take a bull and have it sacrificed in this way And then again, it says, and the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. If the community unknowingly commits a sin, take a bull and sacrifice it in this way, and the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. If the the community knowingly commits a sin, if a leader unknowingly commits a sin, if a leader knowingly commits a sin, it has all of these instances. Whether you know it or not, you're going to sin, and here's the sacrifice you shall make. And if you make the sacrifice for your sin... The priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. The text says forgiven, but there is a problem. In the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, we're told, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see, if these sins were really, truly, once for all forgiven then there wouldn't need to be a sacrifice over and over and over for the same types of sins recommitted. But they weren't really once for all forgiven. The purpose of them was to show those who sinned their guilt and to point them to the promise of God's mercy and to show them their need of a better sacrifice that would be a once for all sacrifice for sins for the forgiveness of sins and eventually excuse me god sends that better sacrifice in the person of his son jesus christ jesus shows up on the scene in mark chapter 2 jesus is preaching and he's in a house And the house is full and there are people standing outside the doors and windows so that you can't even get necessarily up to the house. And there are some some men who have a friend and they know that Jesus is not only a preacher or a teacher, but Jesus is also a healer. And this friend of theirs is lame. He lays on a mat. He cannot get up and he cannot walk. And they know that they're not going to be able to get this man into the house because it's standing room only and people are even standing around the doors and the windows. And so these men get their friend on top of the house and they begin to take apart the roof and lower this man right down in front of Jesus. And we're told that Jesus sees their faith, verse 5 of chapter 2, and when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, the man on the mat, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes, these are the really super religious Jews who copy, they make copies of the scriptures. Because they didn't have a printing press back then. Some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. No one in that room could have said, rise, take up your bed, and walk with authority in a way that would have actually healed So if if none of them could do that and Jesus could do that, then why is it any harder for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven? And Jesus' response is, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And the man stood up, picked up his mat, rolled it up, and he walked out of the house. Now, Jesus was showing... At that moment, who he is. Namely, he is God. He is the Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. But he was also showing that he is both able and willing to forgive those who come to him in faith. Another instance of this is seen in Luke chapter 7. Jesus goes to dinner at the home of a man who is is in the in crowd of the Jewish religious elite. And Jesus goes to dinner at this man's house. And while the dinner is going on, there is an uninvited guest who walks through the doors. It is a woman. And this woman is crying. And she comes to the feet of Jesus. And crying, she proceeds to kiss Jesus' feet as her tears drip down onto them. And she lets down her hair, which would have been very culturally unacceptable. She lets down her hair, and as she has kissed and, and wet Jesus' feet with her tears, she now takes her hair and begins to wipe off or dry his feet. And then she has a vial of very expensive perfume or ointment around her neck, and she proceeds to dump it all over Jesus' feet and continues kissing Jesus' feet. And the the host of the evening, who again is the in crowd of the religious elite, thinks to himself if Jesus were really a holy man, if he were really a prophet, he would know what kind of a woman this is. This woman is a sinner. This woman is immoral. This woman has committed acts which are indecent, which God's law condemns, and here she is touching him, and he's not stopping her. And Jesus, because he is God, knows the thoughts, and so Jesus tells a parable. He says, Simon, this is not Simon Peter, one of his disciples, it's another Simon. He says, Simon... A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii. Another owed him 50. And he forgives the debt of both of them. Which one do you suppose he will love more? Or, sorry, which one do you suppose will love him more? And the host said, the one to whom he has forgiven the greater debt. He says, Simon, let me make a little comparison for you. You threw this party tonight, and when I came into your home, you didn't kiss me on the cheek, which would have been the cultural custom of welcome. But this woman, she kissed my feet. When I came into your house, you didn't... Give me water to wash off my dirty feet. But this woman has washed my feet with her tears. And then he says in verses 47 through 50. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. Now get this straight. She wasn't forgiven because she loved much. Because the parable says that first the debts were forgiven and as a result the debtors loved. So Jesus forgave her sins and it was shown by her love. He said her sins which are many you're right you know she's you know she's an immoral ungodly woman. She has many sins but they are forgiven for she loved much but he who has forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Again, Jesus is showing here that he is God, that he has the power to forgive sins, and he willingly forgives those who show contrition or remorse and repentance and love and trust in him. Repentance and faith are the instruments by which sinners are reconciled to God. In Matthew 26, we're told of the night that Jesus was betrayed. And on the first part of the evening, he is having a meal with his disciples. It's the Passover meal. And during that meal, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. He gives to them the Lord's Supper or communion. And we're told that he breaks bread and he gives uh, gives thanks and he says, take and eat. This is my body. And then he takes a cup and he gave thanks and he tells them, drink of it. And he says in Matthew 26 there, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Why? For the forgiveness of, of sins Amen. Jesus is showing that he's the better sacrifice that will be made once for all to take away the guilt of sin and grant forgiveness and this is even more clear from what follows Jesus's resurrection from the dead after Jesus comes back to life in Luke 24 through 48 it says then he said to them to his disciples these are my words that I spoke to you talking about everything that has happened. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Jesus was very clear about who he is and what he had done and what what we must do to benefit from that and, and why this message should be proclaimed. And the apostles very clearly understood that in light of what Jesus had come and done, God was granting forgiveness of sin, pardon, reconciliation, cleansing, and new life to everyone who repents and believes. And the reason we know this is by the sermons that they preached. We looked at this text from Acts chapter 2 the past two weeks, but we see that After Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, he tells the disciples to stay in Jerusalem until they receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. And they do receive that promise on the day of Pentecost. And they're all praising God in other languages that they did not know already. And a huge crowd hears the commotion and gathers. And at first they say, these people are drunk. And Peter responds to that, no, they're not drunk. It's too early in the morning to get drunk. And then he proclaims the gospel to them, and they hear this message that Jesus is the Messiah who died and rose again. And the men, the the people present there, say, Well, what should we do? If this was the Messiah and we rejected him and had him killed, and God raised him from the dead, what should we do? We're guilty. We've done wrong. We feel remorse and regret. And Peter responds to them in verse 38 of chapter 2 and says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So because of what Jesus has done, Peter offers those whose consciences condemn them, who feel guilty for their actions, rightly so, he offers them forgiveness through repentance and faith in Jesus expressed through baptism the next chapter over we're told that Peter and James are going up or Peter and John they're going up to the temple at the time of prayer there's another man who is a paralytic he's lame and he's begging and they look at him and they say silver and gold have I none but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth Rise up and walk. And that man rises up and he walks and a crowd gathers. And they begin to preach. They begin to preach to the crowd who was there about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then they say, in light of this, that Jesus died and rose again. They say, repent therefore and turn back. Verse 19 of chapter 3, that your sins may be blotted out. Two chapters later, Peter and and the other apostles in Acts 5, they're preaching. And the religious leaders are very jealous that they are growing in influence. And so they have these men arrested. But even though they have been arrested and they're in jail, we're told that an angel comes and springs them out of prison in the middle of the night and tells them, go into the temple, the very place where you're going to get caught again, go into the temple and preach The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so they go to do that. And the next morning, the council of religious leaders gathers, and they say, go get those guys out of prison. We're going to grill them. And they go to the prison, and the guys aren't there. And they start to freak out a little bit. And they say, wait a minute. Oh, these guys are actually in the temple preaching. So they escort them to where the council is. And it says, when they brought them, they set them before the council." And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel. And forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. The apostles are emphatic about the purpose of Jesus' death on the cross. It is so that God might be merciful to everyone who repents in forgiving their sins. Now it's important to note at this point in the storyline of scripture that salvation has been for the Jews. That up to this point, the forgiveness of sins is for the Jews. God chose one man, Abraham, out of all the people of the earth. And he made a covenant with that man that he would bless that man and his offspring. That man, Abraham, had a son named Isaac. And God reaffirmed his covenant with Isaac that I will bless you and your people. That man Isaac had a son named Jacob and God reaffirmed his covenant with Jacob that I will bless you and your people. That man Jacob's name was changed to Israel and his people wound up in Egypt And they became slaves there. And they were there 400 years. And God raised up a man named Moses from among that people to lead them out of slavery in Egypt. And then God gave this man, Moses, his law to the people of Israel. And then God sent his prophets to the people of Israel when they did not obey his law to call them to repentance. And then God finally sent his son, Jesus, to be born as a Jew to these people to die for their sins. And then the Lord's apostles up to this point have been preaching the forgiveness of sins to those people, the people of Israel, but not outside of those people. And then we're told in Acts chapter 10 that Peter is praying and he has a vision and a sheet is let down with all kinds of animals in it, all kinds of animals that the Old Testament law said don't eat. So you can be distinct as the people of God and set apart. But now a voice from the heaven tells Peter, the buffet is open. Anything on this sheet, any kind of animal you see, you can kill it and you can cook it and you can eat it. But Peter says, no, I don't touch things that are unclean. And the voice says, don't call unclean or off limits what God has now called clean. And Peter comes out of the vision or the dream and someone says, hey, there's some guys at the door. They're not Jews, but they have been sent by their master, who is not a Jew, who said that God told him to come get you to preach to them. And so Peter goes to this house of non-Jewish people, which would have been taboo because they would have been unclean. Remember, God has just called unclean things clean. And so Peter goes, and he's like, I need you guys to know it's not right for me to be here, but I had a vision that told me to come. And he begins to preach about what Jesus has done. He died, and he rose again. And then in verse 42, Peter says, And he, that's Jesus, commanded us, the apostles, to preach to the people of Israel and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives what? Forgiveness of sins through his name. And then what happens is a mini Pentecost. These people who would have been thought of as unclean receive the spirit visibly, tangibly, just like the 120 believers who were waiting on the day of Pentecost did. There is an outward sign that God is doing something among them and so they, they see, wait a minute, we thought these guys were unclean, but God has just put his spirit in them the same way he put his spirit in us, which means that God accepts them, which means that God has cleansed them, which means God has forgiven them. Forgiveness of sins is now available to everyone, not just the Jewish And so in verse 47 through 48, it says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. And so they were baptized to show that they have been numbered among the people of God. They have been forgiven. They have become Christians that the forgiveness of sins and peace with God or reconciliation is available through Christ to those who repent and believe is at the very heart of the gospel message or what, uh, or what the good news is. Writing to Christians in the city of Colossae, the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 about God that he, verse 13, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption what is redemption it is the forgiveness of sins in that same chapter verse 21 speaking of their previous life before coming christians before becoming christians he says and you were dead you were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. How how could that be possible? How could they be presented holy and blameless and above reproach if they were sinners? They would have to have their sins forgiven. And then the very next chapter, speaking of the transformation that God has worked in their lives, he writes in chapter 2, verse 10, In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses or sins. This text mentions four things in connection with one another. The first is circumcision of the heart without hands. It's a work of the Holy Spirit, cutting away something, cutting away the power of sin. The second is faith in Christ. The third is the forgiveness of sins. And the fourth is baptism in water. Paul incorporates the language of baptism again in Romans 6, talking about the change that the gospel produces. Up to this point in the book of Romans, Paul has been talking about we're all sinners, we're all condemned. None of us can obey the law. None of us can do enough good works to cancel out our bad deeds. And and we are saved by grace, through faith. Now, Paul's opponents hear this and they say, oh... Well, if you're saved by faith and not by works, if God just forgives sins, not because you earned it, but because he's kind, then you might as well go out and do whatever you want because you'll get away with it, right? Because God will just keep forgiving you. And Paul says in Romans 6, what shall we say then to that nonsense? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were baptized, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism is so closely associated with conversion that Paul can use the language of baptism to illustrate the new life that we have in Christ and our new relationship with sin. We're forgiven and we're no longer slaves. Peter tells Christians in chapter 3 and verse 21 of his first letter in the Bible, baptism, which corresponds to how God saved Noah and his family through the waters of the flood. Baptism, which corresponds to that, This now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to have a good conscience? It means to not feel guilty, right? If your conscience bothers you, it's telling you you've done something wrong. To have a good conscience means, I don't feel guilty. I don't feel ashamed. I feel free. And how else can we feel free and have a good conscience other than knowing that all of our sins are forgiven and there is nothing left for us to feel bad about or be ashamed of. And Peter closely ties baptism with this, not by means of the water itself. He says the water doesn't wash, truly wash away dirt or make us clean, but rather the water is an instrument through which we appeal to God or ask God to forgive us of our sins because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, someone with sensitive ears here today may be hearing this connection between the forgiveness of sins and baptism and wonder if the Bible is saying or if I'm representing the Bible to say that a person must be baptized to be saved. So let me be very clear. The Bible presents faith in Christ as the means by which we are forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God. And the Bible presents baptism as the demonstration of our faith in Christ and our appeal to God. So it is by faith that we are forgiven and reconciled. And when the Bible talks about our response of faith, it closely associates it with baptism. So much so that Robert Stein in his book, Baptism and Becoming a Christian in the New Testament, can say, No one came to the conversion experience, so becoming a Christian, with questions as to whether baptism was necessary for becoming a Christian because the apostolic preaching stated that they must be baptized. Thus, the rejection of baptism was a rejection of the divine program for conversion. To reject baptism was to reject the gospel message preached by Peter, Paul, and the other apostles who spoke of the need of baptism. Divine provision was made for those who, like the thief on the cross, could not be baptized, but to refuse the community's baptism was the same as a rejection of the Christ whom the community preached and involved the clear unwillingness to obey the gospel preached by the apostles. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson, in his commentary on Matthew's gospel, writes, We can scarcely conceive of a disciple who is not baptized or is not instructed. So what do we believe as Christians? We believe that the forgiveness of sins is offered to all who repent And turn to Christ. Trusting in his death. Or trusting. Yes in his death on their behalf. Resulting in cleansing. And new life. Which is signified. By baptism. That's what we believe. Why do we believe it? We believe it because that is what scripture teaches. So quickly. Why does it matter? Why does it matter that we believe that? Three reasons quickly. Because. Without a belief in the forgiveness of sins, if we believe all these things that are true about God and all these things that are true about Jesus, but we don't believe that God willingly forgives all the sins of all those who repent and believe, then we are all still in our sins. There can be no forgiveness. If God doesn't willingly forgive us, there's no way that we can find forgiveness apart from God. We are all guilty. We are all damned. We are all going to hell, period, no matter what. The end of the story. Without the forgiveness of sins, there is no relationship with God. There is no heaven after death. There is no life with God. That's why it matters. Second reason why it matters if we do not believe in the forgiveness of sins, we will never, ever be able to be completely vulnerable and live without shame or fear. There are things in my life that I am not proud of. There are things in my life from my past that very, 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 very few people know about. I could probably count on one hand, maybe, maybe two max, I'm 43, who I've shared those things with over the past 30 years. And I I really wouldn't want those things publicized. But if Somehow, those things were made public and everyone in the world knew about them. Do you know what I'd be able to say? I'm not proud of that, but I am forgiven. And so the worst that you can think about me doesn't really matter because the person whose opinion matters most does not relate to me based on those things anymore you will never be free to live without fear and to live without shame and be vulnerable with other people if you do not believe that God forgives sins the third reason why it matters is without the forgiveness of sins we can't be reconciled to God but without the forgiveness of sins we can't be reconciled to anyone else either Everywhere in Scripture where forgiving other people is expounded on, do you know what the impetus for that forgiveness is? It is always as God forgave you or because God has forgiven you. The reason we can forgive anyone, anything they have done to us, no matter how horrible or despicable or vile it is, is because it pales in comparison to the horrible, vile, and despicable things that we have done against God, and yet God willingly has forgiven us. And that is the power for our forgiveness of others. If I could be reconciled to God in spite of, or rather, in light of what I have done, there is not a soul who I should not be able to be reconciled to because of what Christ has done for me. But if you take away the forgiveness of sins in Christ, then what is the grounds for ever being able to forgive another person? And why should I want to? So believing in the forgiveness of sins matters because we can't be reconciled to other people unless we've first been reconciled to God. Do you believe in the forgiveness of sins today? Do you you know the forgiveness of sins? Have you come to experience the complete forgiveness of all your sins because God laid them on a man in Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago, and he paid for them to the full so that you, by acknowledging your need and taking hold of him, could be pardoned. And have you shown that your trust is in him to pardon you through believer's baptism? All of our sins can be forgiven, and God freely offers this to all who will repent and believe in Jesus. And that is the gospel. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your great grace this morning that you forgive unworthy sinners and the worst of these. Not because of any program that they're able to commit themselves to, to right their wrongs, but because Jesus died and rose again. Father, I pray for every man, woman, boy, and girl in this room today that they would see their need for Christ, that they would feel remorse and sorrow on account of their sins, and that rather than succumbing to the guilt, and shame of their sin, they would flee to Christ for forgiveness. Father, I pray for any person who would say, I'm a Christian today that has not been baptized, that they would make good on their obedience to Christ and their response to the gospel message and be baptized. And Father, I pray for any Christian here today who has an estranged relationship with someone because of what they've done to them. That because Christ died and rose again, that they might be forgiven. They would find power to be reconciled to that person and extend forgiveness to them as well. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy. And it's in Christ's name we pray.